I'd like to ask you to bow with me now and let's pray. Oh, Lamb of God. Wow. That you are also the Lion of Judah. Wow. We are trying this morning to place you on the highest place. We want so much to see you, to be changed by you. We do not want to be the same. And we know we can't will that. That has to come from you as we fix our eyes on you and turn our attention towards you. And Father, right now we're asking to hear from you. Please come and be with us through the preaching of this word. Take this sack lunch of a message and turn it into a feast to feed us. Don't leave us the same. Help us to be a little bit more like that Lamb of God, that we are lambs of God. Father, we also lift up Impact Church. We know that they're in dire... Uh, endeavoring and desiring to do the same today. Father, may they be a group of disciples also who place you on the highest place. May our number grow throughout this county and this state and this nation. Father, please bring another awakening to your majesty. We know your meekness. We celebrate that often, that you came to get in it with us. But Father, we, we need a fresh vision of your majesty, that you are high and lifted up above us. That's the only place you deserve. Please, Father, help us to those ends today. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, amen. The God who holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some other insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as being worthy of nothing except to be cast into that fire. His pure eyes cannot bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes as the most venomous and hateful serpent in ours. You have offered him infinitely more heartache and frustration than any rebel prince, his king. And yet, it is nothing but his hand that prevents you from falling into the fire every moment. It is ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night except for his grace. And only the grace of his hand has kept you from being dropped into hell this morning. Now, I know you don't, that doesn't sound exactly like me, all right? And it's not. At least not fully. And I wished I had an app on my phone that I could hook up to John Knight or hook up to Haley and, and for just a moment see what's your reaction to hearing those words. I know that some of you, as I was looking out, I could see some of you were thinking, well, all right, Martha, hand me a Tic Tac and my iPad. I'm taking notes. Didn't know the boy had this in him. Some of you, we're thinking, oh, great, I finally invited a visitor to come, and now he's bringing out the flamethrower on Sunday. And some of you, as I was sharing those words, thought, you're so right. You're so right. Well, what I've just shared with you are a few lines from Jonathan Edwards' sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God that was preached in the late 1800s. 
It was the cornerstone message for a tremendous revival that broke out on this continent called the First Great Awakening. Now, I've shared those verses with you for two reasons. Number one, because the essence of what he says is true. It's true. It may be put in terms that are hard to hear, but it's nonetheless true. The scripture is clear. None of us is righteous before a holy God. And that the consequence for that unrighteousness is physical and spiritual death, annihilation, fire. And if you are alive at this moment, you need to understand it is only by His grace. The air that you breathe is God's creation. The lungs that you use to breathe the air that He made is His creation. Your brain controlling the functions of those lungs that enable you to air to breathe the air that you have, all of that is His creation. And all of it, listen to me, is a gift. It's a gift to you. None of us deserve this. And that any of us would be not just ungrateful for Him, but disrespectful of Him and rebellious to Him. That's not just rude. It's stupid. It's senseless. It's crazy. The Scriptures say it is worthy of death. And it is nothing short of His grace and mercy in our life that allows us to continue in existence here on this planet. His planet. Now, I don't know what you think about the Scriptures. Whether you believe that they really are God's inspired Word to us. But clearly, that's what these Scriptures claim. And I believe with all of my heart, they are God's inspired words to us. And it humbles me. It really humbles me. It puts fear into me to share those words with you on His behalf. And it fills me not just with fear, but it fills me with gratitude. And I hope in some small way it's beginning to do the same for you as well. I think one of the great contributors to many lifeless and lethargic and flat-out dead assemblies that you and I have been in in our lifetime is because we have lost as a church the mystery and awe of God. It's not very often that we really truly mean it. Here I am to worship because we've lost that mystery and that awe. I think too many of us have become a little laid back with God, a little bit too comfortable to the point of irreverence and disrespect. Only you can know whether the mention of his name is synonymous with wonder and awe and reverence or not. And if your desire is to be the kind of worshiper, as we looked at last week, that God seeks, that God's on the lookout for, he will settle for nothing less because he deserves nothing less. Amen, church? He deserves nothing less than the highest place in our lives. I don't think we could start in a better place of examining where we are as worshipers with our attitudes than asking how is the all level in your life? Or as Rick Ashley has been putting in our Revelation series, how all full are you? If you're worshiping God, if you're here, here to worship, your all levels are high. Now, worshiping God may not be your aim right now, and I want you to know I get that. You might be honestly just stepping back in to get to know Him again. We're just so glad that you are. Get to know Him, but don't stop there. 
Glad you're here. Thrilled that you're here. But don't stop with just foot, putting your foot in the water. And if you do move on down the journey to getting to know who he is and you see him, you will see two things, that he is this mystery that's both a combination of meekness and majesty. He is both so approachable and yet at the same time so incredibly remarkable, unlike any otherable. How's that for a word? That's who he is, though. While he's the lamb for sinners slain, as we just sang, make no mistake about it, he is the absolute lion of Judah and he is not to be trifled with. Moses, I think, understood this better than anybody. He had the unique opportunity to know God, not just powerfully, but personally. He first gets to know God personally when he's putting in just another day, herding some sheep. How he became a sheep herder is a story for another day. Most of you know it anyways. But he goes over to check out this bush that's burning. It's on fire in the desert. And it's not burning up. And so it grabs his curiosity and he walks over to it. And as he gets near, a, listen to me, voice speaks to him. He's got a conversation going with this voice before long. And this voice makes it clear, you are on holy ground. Take your shoes off. You are talking to a holy God. Now the same voice turns his sheep herder's staff into a snake and then back into his staff again. All the while, he's looking on this bush that's fire. And this voice he knows is coming from someone, but listen to me, he can't see him. And this person or power that he's listening to, this voice, sends him into the presence of the most powerful person on the planet, Pharaoh. And he comes to make a request, let God's people go. And over a series of days and weeks, maybe even months, he empowers Moses to lead the most incredible representation of miracles the world maybe has ever seen or ever will see. He empowers him to turn water into blood, perform miracles involving swarms of locusts and gnats and frogs and flies, and eventually the death of every firstborn in that kingdom who didn't have blood over their doorposts. And that was many. This voice, just a voice, so empowers him to do all of those wondrous things. Pharaoh's convinced, I need to let these people go. And over a million in people, he removes from the payroll and sends them out of the wilderness, not just empty-handed, but lots of stuff. Please, get out of here. And when he goes, he changes his mind. And Pharaoh follows these folks with his armies and intend to bring them back. And when they go through this sea that's parted just in front of them that Moses and the people have gone through, it closes in on them and they are gone. And this group of awe-filled, freed slaves make their way to a little mountain. And as we read a few moments ago, God calls Moses up to this mountain. And he is scared to death. Because they know that anybody who even goes near that mountain and touches it will die. He calls Moses up. And what's next makes me a little envious. He goes up to see God and he says, God, I want to see you. I've heard you. I've witnessed your power. I've obeyed your command. But I want to see you. And I can understand the question. 
He served his God. He's obeyed him. And now when he could ask anything from him, he says, can I see you? Because, church, I haven't seen the miracles. I haven't been a part of all of that kind of miraculous, powerful wonder. I've had some great things happen in my life. But I can only imagine after having led the way through all of that, I'd want to see that voice. Where it was, who, who, what? What do you look like? And that's not just any question. Because I believe when we cross a line and ask, can we see you? We've crossed a line that maybe we can't ever really return in quite the same way. When our deepest desire is not just the things of God that He can give us or the assistance that He can be to us, when we seek not a favor from God but His face, I think we cross a threshold. And I think that threshold is this, from consumer to worshiper. Worshiper. Here's what God says. You don't know what you're asking. But I will make all of my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name. Interesting name. Some of you think you may have a long name. Listen to this one. The Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. How's that for a name? But Moses, you cannot see my face. For the man shall not see me and live. Here's what I will do. I will place you in the rocks and I will pass by you. I will cover you with my hand. And when I have passed by, I will remove it and you will see my back, but my face cannot be seen. And God did so. And I wished I could have been there. Moses cowering under the umbrella of God's hand, waiting, I believe, with his face covered and his eyes covered, pulse racing until God gives a signal. And remember, church, if Moses gets this wrong, he dies. When the hand of God lifts, so does Moses' eyes. And they catch this distant, disappearing glance of the back parts of God, the Bible says. Because the heart and center of who God is can't be looked upon, so he gets to see the back side of God. And this fading glimpse is going to have to suffice. It's going to have to do. And I don't know about you, but I'm seeing the long, flowing gray hair of Moses whipped by the wind, leathery hands holding on to the sides of the rock. And as this gust settles and he sees this God who's led him and his people through all the, all the stuff in the past that's glorious and majestic and unbelievable, something happens. Paul records for us in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 7 that he was beaming. Not just smiling, but beaming like a radioactive explosion had gone off and he got caught in it. Paul describes it this way. The sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory that was on his face. Now that's a worship service. I would have loved to have been at that one. Moses was thrilled. Something happens. Something changes. When you say, I want to see you, God, not just receive from you, not just be assisted by you, but see you, Moses knows that. Now, I'm sure that when the prophet Isaiah read about this event in Moses' life a couple of hundred years later, he may have thought, well, that's just a little bit of an exaggerated, trumped-up preacher story. But then one day he went to worship. In Isaiah chapter 6, the Bible says, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, 
Seated on a throne in the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they were flying. And they were calling to one another. Say the words with me, church. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah records that the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord, the Almighty. Let me say it again. That's a worship service I wish I could have attended. Say, Jimmy, who's this guy Isaiah? Well, he's a prophet. In regards to importance, you need to think ancient Israel's version of Senate chaplain, Supreme Court judge. His family is aristocratic. His Hebrew is impeccable. He is polished. He is professional. He is successful in the eyes of everyone in his community. He is a something. But the day that he sees God, sees him, only one response is appropriate. To get on his face and to proclaim, woe to me, I am ruined, I am nothing. That's who I am. Those two stories wreck me. I don't know how you hear them. Both are eyewitness accounts of men who have seen as much of God as they humanly can stand. And if you're like me, it causes a little bit of a knot to form in your stomach and a small chill to run down your spine. And I believe that if you're serious about wanting to become a worshiper of God that He seeks, not tolerates, but seeks, that you will seek Him. And when you do, the Bible promises you will find Him. Because those that draw near to him, he promises, I will draw near to. And when that happens, he will stun you. He will amaze you. He will rock your world. If he's a concept, no. But if he's a reality, yes. Wherever you are, whoever you are, I'm telling you, changes. It changes. Because when God's in the house, it's a different house altogether. That's what the scripture says over and over and over and over again. Paul tries to capture a little bit of that as he told us about the reaction to to Moses when he comes down. Something that Moses couldn't see, but the people could see. This glory that was beaming on him. And he says that, 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 that. When you behold the glory of God. You will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Not making this up. God says when you fix your eyes, when you make an effort, when nothing else matters but to see God, you will see Him. And you will not be the same. (laughs) It is a frightening thing, I want to warn you though, to see Him. Every time one of His errand boys shows up, we call them angels. Scares the daylights out of folks like us. You know what the common response is when when an angel shows up? Do not be afraid. 
Because every time one of his errand boys shows up, we are. And that's just an errand boy of God. Let alone God. I am thrilled. When I go on the internet or I hear a story from one of our young people, college-age kids especially right now, because in our country, there is this movement of college-age kids to not just know God as a great assistant, but to know God as a creator and sustainer of life that he is. Louis Giglio and Michael W. Smith have been hosting what's been called Passion Conferences since 1997. And through them, hundreds of thousands of teens across this country have caught a glimpse of who God is, and they are not the same. This is the theme verse, you're going to love this, of their movement. Isaiah 26 and verse 8. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your truth, we eagerly wait for you. For your name and renown are the desire of our souls. Now, can you think about a theme verse you would like to have for your children? (laughs) Wouldn't that be one of them? We wait for you. Not what you can give us, but for you. And we are amazed at your name and renown. We're making them the desire of our souls. I don't think it could be any timelier for our culture. Because most of the culture seems to be ignoring God. And on many occasions, snubbing him specifically. Now that's outside the church. Can I talk about inside the church? How much talk of reverence and awe and wonder have you heard lately off of our lips? I know we ask a lot about God and a lot from God. We get calls to our office all the time about that. And in our prayer groups, we're constantly asking Him for things. But I want to ask you, church, when was the last time that you heard reverent words, awe-filled words, wonderful, awful words? Now, I could spend the rest of our time together speculating about who or what's responsible for that, but instead, I'd rather just point your attention to a God who deserves our adoration and awe. Look at Psalms 94 with me, verses 1 through 7. David saw this as he looked among his people, something that you probably see. The Lord is a God who avenges. O God who avenges, you shine forth. Rise up, judge of the earth. Pay back to the proud what they deserve. How long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the foreigner. They murder the fatherless. They murder them. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob takes no notice. I don't think it's hard for you to think about the scene that David's describing because you know it well. The kids in your class think that and say that. The fellows you play golf with think that and say that. The ladies you tie with think that and say that. He's talking about the late night comedians who giggle about God and who grin when they say, God's going to get you. Now that's the outside of the church. What about the inside? How has reverence and the lack of it, how has awfulness and the lack of it affected us? I'm convinced that immorality is as rampant in the church as it is outside the church because of the lack of awe and reverence in the church. One of the reasons that drugs have a niche at all in our family or that divorce has such a frightening statistic among any of us 
is that we've lost a healthy fear of an awesome God. And sister, I believe that unless we develop a distinct, healthy reverence for who he is, we will never praise him. We will never honor him. We will never give him the glory that's due him. And it's going to have to start with this. We have got to remove from the church this image of a helpless, impotent, <laughs> mealy-mouthed, maybe no-tooth or snaggle-tooth God who really isn't powerful enough to do much of anything, who's almost like this old grandpa, feeble and unable to get around, who says, you, you, you better settle down over there or I'm going to come get you. And we say to ourselves, oh, yeah, that's just grandpa. My God's no grandpa. Hey, all you grandfathers, no offense, all right? My God is an awesome, inspiring, unbelievably powerful, loving father. It makes me want to hide when I think of his power and his majesty. In part because when God gets angry, no time outs here. When God gets angry, he barbecues people. Read the book. You say, well, how can you talk about God like that? Read the book. When God gets upset with two preachers who get a little flippant with his worship, Nadab and Abihu, there is thunder and there is fire and instant death. Who could forget Sodom and Gomorrah? When God pours out his wrath upon a people who say, we don't need God. Who needs God? There is dust and wind, and all of a sudden this plume of smoke like a nuclear bomb has gone off, and people are gone. The same Jehovah we pray to said that if a child doesn't respect his parents, no time out, you haul him into the city square and you stone him. Now that would change some attitudes, wouldn't it, at your house? I guarantee you no mama had to say to Junior, don't you run in the church building. All they had to say was, Remember your older brother. <laughs> he is not a God to be toyed with. And somebody will say, well, that's the Old Testament God. Really? How about Acts 5 and verse 15? When Ananias and Sapphira are caught lying to God, it is instant death. Three hours later, Sapphira walks in, makes the same mistake, and the text says she fell dead. Immediately. And the text says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Yeah. Somebody says, I don't believe that's the God that we serve today. Really? Somebody says, I don't believe that we serve a God that we have to fear. Really? Why? Because you can't fear and love somebody at the same time. Really? You don't know my daddy. I believe with all my heart you can fear and love someone at the same time. When I was younger, my dad would say to me, that has a translation. If you don't stop what you're doing, sportsman, I'm going to come take your life. Are we clear? 
just a little snap. All he had to do was get near a belt buckle and have a way of changing my thinking. I grew up with an understanding that my dad was to be taken seriously. He was to be loved, yes, but respected honorably. And it may have saved my life. And I think it may save yours. If you think of your Abba, your dad that way. When Jesus came to better help us understand who God is, he didn't come saying, ah, don't be afraid of God. He's a pushover. Don't worry about the Lord. No, sir. Listen to what he says in Luke 12, verse 15. I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who not only can take your life from you, but whom, after he's done so, can throw you into hell. That's who you need to fear. And the only one who can do that is our God. Those are Jesus' words about his dad and about our Abba. Now you say, well, Jimmy, how in the world then do you blend the two, this understanding of, of that type of fearful God and this graceful God? Well, I think this way. Grace is more of a treasure to me when I understand that God is a threat to me. Can I say that again? I really believe grace is more of a treasure to me when I fully understand he is a threat to me. I believe it's possible that God is worthy of both respect and awe, that I can tremble when I think of his name, but also know that he so loved me that he would keep nothing from me, yea, even only his son, his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, as Jeff said a few moments ago, but have everlasting life. Some of us, I think, have forgotten. He owes us nothing. Nothing. I listened to a story recently about a professor at one of our uh, state universities. Has a great launch of his freshman class. Every class, he announces this. The grade that you're going to receive for this class will be based entirely upon three papers. There will be no tests and no daily work. Which I would have gone, yeah. But I want something clearly understand, understood, he says. Our first paper is due October 1st. If that paper is late, you will get F, period. With the exception of two things. One, a death in your family or a personal stay in a hospital. Our second term paper is due November 1st. If it is late, F. The third paper is due December 1st. The same thing is true for that paper. If it is late, F. Do we understand each other? And every year the class says, yes, sir. Well, on October the 1st, one year, 225 out of 250 students turned their papers in on time. 25 came back with panic written all over their faces. And they were begging for an extension. They said, we're struggling with making adjustments to college life. We want to do better. Could we have just a little bit more time? And he said, all right. I want to grant you a two-day extension. But do you understand that on November 1st, when your next paper is due, if it is late... F. Yes, sir, we do. November 1st arrived. This time, 200 papers are turned in on time and 50 are late. Twice the number as before. They were a little bit worried, but not too much because there was hope for mercy. 
They said, Professor, we had no idea midterms would get this demanding. Could we just have two more days so that we can get out our papers and get them ready? Next time we promise to have our papers turned in on time. And the professor said, all right, I'll give you two days. But we have an understanding. December 1st, if any of your papers are late, F. Well, you can probably guess what happened. On December 1st, 150 turned in their paper on time. And 100 didn't. Double again the number. This time the students weren't just hoping for mercy. They were banking on it. And so the professor went down row by row gathering up their papers. If they were not ready, each student received an F. Right there on the spot. Now can you imagine the response of the students? Here's what it was. Outrage. How can you do this? Mr. Russell, you're not being fair. To which Mr. Russell said, Oh, you want me to be fair, Mr. Adams. Let's see. The record says here both of your previous papers were late. That's three F's. And all of a sudden, Mr. Adams had a change of heart and gladly received his F. See, Mr. Adams wasn't interested in fairness. He was only interested in mercy and on his terms. That is so like me. How about you? And we're talking about holy, holy, holy God. God owes me nothing. He owes you nothing. Every one of us willfully has chosen to go our own way and to do our own thing. And Romans 3 and verse 23 is very, very clear and succinct. The wages of sin is death. Now, the free gift of God is eternal life, but the wages of sin is still death. The fact that any of us are alive and breathing and have hope of living another second, still, like our brother Edwards said at the beginning of this lesson, hinges on God's grace and grace alone. I don't demand grace. I receive it, and I'm thankful for it, and I honor and worship the one who gives it. And we're organizing a group of worshipers here at KCC who will live out a life of gratefulness to this incredible God that we serve. And I think that when we get this reverence and awe thing right, these times together will not be the same. How could they be? If we come here not to worship, but we truly bring our worship with us. I think, I think maybe these times will be different. Two worship services we looked at earlier, and I'm telling you, when God shows up, they're different. Pay attention to how this one ends. When Isaiah sees the holiness of God, he's not puffed up. He's face down. He takes no notes. He plans no sermon series, no plans for cruise ship seminars. No, sir. He falls flat on his face begging for mercy. Woe is me. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I don't want to lose this. One glimpse of God and this prophet proclaims his citizenship among the infected and the diseased of the world. That's where the word unclean was used. It was a term used to describe those who were not even fit to be around humans, let alone God. I am unclean to be in your presence. And God's holiness doesn't just stop at silencing the man. He graces the man. 
please never forget how this worship service ends. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, Isaiah writes, with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Now, isn't that crazy? Isaiah didn't even ask for mercy. But he gets it. And I have to believe because of how he responded when he saw God. I'll tell you how he responded. As a worshiper. As a worshiper. I am not worthy to even lift my face. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And he doesn't even ask for mercy, but God in his mercy gives it. And then God asks a question. I need to send somebody out of here. I wonder who will go. <laughs> and Isaiah responds with his heart and his hand. Here I am. Whoa. Over here. Send me. Send me. And in the most humblest of way, I walked out of an office this morning to say, Lord, send me. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of my Lord. And some of you have seen him. I just need for you to get more vocal about him. And fill this place with wonder and awe and reverence. To say, here we are to worship God. Here we are. Right here. Because you so deserve the highest place. You are the Lamb of God. Make me one too. If God doesn't stun you anymore, could it be, brother, that your eyes aren't on him anymore? That they've been distracted? This is a great place to fix them on him. To just come humbly before him and say, I'm sorry. I've seen you today and I am not leaving here the same. And asking one of your brothers here to pray over you that that would change, not just for the moment here, but forever. And if you've walked in here this morning and maybe for the first time you see God like you've never seen him, it's only because he did it. He's the one who reveals himself when and where he wants to. But if he's revealed himself to you this morning and you want in on this God thing, you want to offer your life to him. You're here. here, send me, use me, forgive me, whatever. whatever you, I want you in my life more today than I had you tomorrow, yesterday. And more tomorrow than I have you today. We're going to stand and sing a song, Here I Am to Worship. If you haven't meant that and God's changed your heart this morning and you want to have more power and energy to live that this week, please come find us. And if God's inviting you today to start a new journey with him, oh, Junior did last week. Got to see him bury an old life and start a new one at such a young age. I'm so thrilled that young people left and right are saying, I want to I serve him. I want to be his. And if you want to be numbered among those, we're going to start worshiping. And if you're here to worship and you need to come find another brother to assist you in that, please come find one of us at the back or the front. Let's stand. Let's worship, church.